catch up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com. Floods, famine, drought, locust attack, unbearable heat, climate change. If you have not experienced any of these firsthand, you must have heard of it from somewhere or from someone. The Global Climate Summit, which was held in Egypt, known as COP27, is the conference of the parties, which includes the 197 nations that agreed to a new environmental pact called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change at a meeting in the year 1992. In 2021, the conference aimed to secure global net zero by mid-century and keep 1.5 degrees within reach. It also aimed to adapt to protect communities and natural habitats, mobilize finance, finalize the Paris rulebook, the detailed rules that make the Paris Agreement operational, and work together to accelerate action to tackle the climate crisis. Now, what were the commitments made at COP26 that concerned Africa, and how well did the implementation go for Africa? That's one. What commitments have been made at COP27? And did these commitments meet the expectation of what we all called or referred to as an African COP? What did the conference aim to achieve in Egypt and were the goals actually achieved during the negotiations? We're joined by a climate activist and an expert and a COP27 delegate, Chagosi Ude, to discuss these issues. Hi, Chagosi. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Antonio. Thanks for having me and hope you're doing good. Yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. How did the journey go from the conference uh, back to where you're based, where you're staying? Well, as as you can imagine, for every cop, uh, the end of the cop, it's usually very, uh, very tiring. And uh, you almost left completely sapped of energy. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was a safe trip for most people back, I think. Uh, a few uh, illness here and there, you know, the stress of... Uh, two to three weeks of intense engagement and negotiations so yeah we're all back uh, recovering as always uh, but happy to 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 get this done Mm. and it seemed like the world cup came just at the heel of it just when we finished with the negotiations at uh, the cop 27 yeah absolutely so probably good timing uh, to have something to really relax with Uh, just uh uh, starting uh, just at the end of COP, COP ended early in the morning on the Sunday and uh, the World Cup started later in the evening. So probably good for, for those that were in the last plenary, they probably missed watching the games uh, at the beginning. But I think uh, it's, a, it's a good getaway from uh, this in, uh, very, very difficult technical uh, negotiations. Pretty much welcome. Mm. So when you place the expectations that Africans had, we all had before COP27 and after. Did COP27 meet our expectations? So this is in many folds. Um, I would say that even, I mean, people can argue about this from many perspectives, but if you're talking about delivering for Africa uh, in terms of their needs, in terms of uh, their priority, I would think that uh, developing countries may have something to cheer about the outcome of, of, of COP27, particularly because uh, the biggest win from this conference was the Loss and Damage Fund, which has been championed by developing countries, and not excluding Africa. A lot of African activist governments have really championed this agenda. And for the first time in the COP process, Loss and Damage was included as, a, as an agenda item in the, uh, in the, in the COP and also 
being at, at an agenda item, it, the, the discussion progressed um, quite strongly. Of course, it didn't, it didn't feel like this during the process of uh, within the two weeks of the COP. It felt like this during the ending. It was in the last uh, 48, 72 hours that it felt like something was coming through. So uh, this uh, loss and damage fund was a very significant, very important win for Africa. There were also in the lead up to the COP, a lot of talks about this COP being a COP of adaptation and resilience, which is primarily what Africa has been, uh, you know, working on around its priority areas for climate action. Uh, this COP did not particularly deliver for adaptation finance. Uh, the COP26 ensured a lot of pledges, of the, a lot of talks about doubling financing for adaptation. A lot of those uh, pledges remained pledges as we speak and they were not delivered. So there was an air of disappointment uh, in this axis that countries were frustrated that, that pledges were made in the in, in Glasgow were not were not redeemed. And yet again um, there was not a significant progress around uh, adaptation negotiations around the global good adaptation. Uh, there were all the little moves of the needle here and there on the topic, but substantially uh, there was not a, a strong achievement on that on that front uh, from from COP27. So there may be a feeling of of, uh, of disappointment in some quarters around this. Uh, but then many would take solace in the fact that uh, this COP delivered a loss and damage, and that was unprecedented. Mm. Now, let's just try to highlight the major negotiations and final agreements that we would say can be tied to COP27. Okay, so um, there were quite a lot of broad areas of, uh, of negotiation. There was, of course, on adaptation, on mitigation, on gender and climate, um, on loss and damage, on climate finance, which is statutory, and also of, uh, on carbon markets, the Article 6. So... In all of this, first we've highlighted that a fund for loss and damage has been established. This is significant. This is the first time it's happening in over 30 years since Vanuatu, a small island state, mentioned this uh, in, in a UN process. This fund, we only have the mere establishment. We have not got into the details, so there's a lot of work needed to be done to really understand how this fund should operate. Uh, specifically mentioned the criteria for access, uh, how it could address the, the the impacts of people and and you know who is contributing what parts to to which uh, because one one difficult area that threatened that this deal was around which countries are going to contribute to this you know and within the UN system you find that uh, some countries have been developing countries from the since 1992s you know they've, they've remained developing country even though their circumstances have changed. So now a lot of countries are saying that these countries are no longer developing countries. They should be developed countries, but that has not been changed within the UN process. So that means, in fact, that uh, if, if the fund is thrown open, these countries could be eligible to benefit from the funding. So it, uh, in, in past, part of the negotiations, this country, some of these countries were called out by uh, fellow uh, parties to, to say that countries like A, B and C should be able to contribute to the part of this fund. And, and uh, of course, obviously, countries uh, would uh, ideally want them to have uh, responsibilities to contribute enormous financing. So it, it was a, a part of the negotiations that was a bit contentious uh, until uh, some middle ground was, was sought. So this was, on the one side, a very important win. The second one was about the mitigation work program. 
um, this this uh, this COP did not deliver strongly on keeping emissions under 1.5 degrees C. In fact, at some point, it, uh, many people would consider it as almost renetching or struggling to match the 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 level of, uh, of ambition that Glasgow did on this topic. If you recall, Glasgow called for a face down of uh, fossil fuels, including coal, right? But then this uh, at the COP27, there was even at a point where it was under threat that we cannot even maintain what we had uh, from from Glasgow. So the final text around uh, the mitigation work program left uh, was not strong enough. It's, it's of course it's it's still managed to really. Uh, try to maintain you know what we had from from Glasgow but did not improve on its ambition it does not ask for stronger pledges it merely recalled the request from last year in in, um, in Glasgow and uh, it, it also does not call for global emissions to peak as soon as possible and given a deadline of 2025 so these were areas that it did not address and uh, and uh, developed countries a lot of developed countries the eu and other negotiating blocks were very disappointed that this uh, the mitigation work program was weak in strongly insisting on phasing on, on phasing off all fossil fuels and and um and giving you know clear guidance that really brings us to to 1.5 uh degree c so uh, for many countries, uh, there is a feeling that while we delivered on, on loss and damage, we are treating this the, the symptoms and not the causes. So they felt like uh, mitigation work uh, program was a major letdown that that cannot be that cannot be accepted. I, I, in fact, at some point, a lot of developed countries delegations threatened not to agree to a deal that includes this loss and damage if this if the mitigation component is not enhanced. Uh, in fact, in the statements made by some of the of the representatives of these blocks, they repeatedly highlighted that they are reluctantly backing the final decision of the COP27 as not to let down their colleagues from developing countries who who's worked incredibly hard to to deliver the loss and damage um, uh, fund. So on this mitigation work program, there's a bit of a letdown, and people feel. Um, that this COP could have done better to deliver on this. And then around Article 6, uh, Article 6 negotiations is negotiations around the carbon markets, you know, about carbon offsets, how can we trade within this mechanism, how is the money used, the transparency, accountability. These this are all captured on the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. So last year, if you remember, the Glasgow Pact delivered strongly on Article 6. It agreed around this uh, this framework for the first time since the Paris Agreement we were able to agree on a way forward on Article 6. Now we are getting into the details of how this can really be operationalized, who is trading what, what is eligible to be traded, how is it communicated, you know, how are the missions uh, handled. So one of the contentious issues around this was what information would countries, you know, reports in the internationally traded mitigation outcomes which is the itmos and and that should this reporting be kept confidential or should it be made public so parts of the of the of the agreed text was leaning towards giving countries uh, you know control to keep this information secret which a lot of uh, a lot of actors and stakeholders were not happy with they felt this is compromising 
and it also speaks a lot to you know um, enhancing or enabling countries to uh, to probably engage in some kind of greenwashing because if the information is kept confidential and cannot be accessed by by everyone then how do you verify how do you hold uh, government and companies accountable on their various claims the the substa the substa is a, is a technical body on science and technology to really develop rules that might constrain the use of of this confidentiality clause so this is a, an item under development they have asked the countries to and, and other parties also to submit their views on on this matter or by the next midterm meeting which would be in june which we call the the intercessionals it's a more technical negotiation that has around 5000 6000 people it will happen in bonn in june 2023 and countries have been asked to submit their views about whether this information should be confidential or not and the modalities around that so there could be a decision on this hopefully um by the next uh, cop or the subsequent ones and this would link on you know the necessary infrastructure to trade on carbon credits uh, hopefully through uh, from what is popularly mentioned through a centralized accounting and reporting uh, platform another uh, sticking point around this article 6 is about carbon removal so there are negotiations around um, within the climate space there there are concerns from some stakeholders about the concept of carbon removal using technology various scientific procedures to remove carbon instead of stopping the emission right so uh, many people have proposed this as a solution a lot of people have also opposed it as abdicating responsibility and probably causing other damage that uh, may not be very useful in um, in the process of, of addressing climate change so this process of re- removal is essentially trying to engineer a process that sucks out carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and it's not it's not sitting very comfortably with a lot of stakeholders and um there are also people who really admire this and and are trying it out at large scale some countries are already making huge technological advances around this component carbon capture and storage carbon removal um, all of this so the negotiations around this where how do we define uh, the concept of carbon removal. So, you know, um, how how do we really have a supervisory body that can analyze and suggest ways on what can count as carbon removal and what cannot? And how can this process be run efficiently, if if at all it can run efficiently? How can it run efficiently? How can it be? How, how can it be monitored? How can people, you know, be able to hold this process to to account? What are the safeguards? especially around the people, impact on people, impact on the environment. How, how is it appropriate in terms of human rights considerations? How does it impact indigenous people? How does it impact local communities? Are there you know, other impacts that are not accounted for now? This is the whole conversation around carbon removal. So this also was one of the, the major uh, points also that we discussed. But by and large, this COP was the was a COP that, you know, for the first time mentioned things around the right to a healthy environment. And in its cover decision, it mentioned things around nature-based solutions, uh, mentioned things around food security, water, things like rivers, you know, water, stress, and, and, and things like this. It's, it's also mentioned the need for our financial systems to really transform, especially giving responsibility uh, to multilateral development banks to really reform their practices to address this emergency. The cover decision also, as you could see, it's 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 launched the Sharma Sheikh dialogue on 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 financial flows. This is around Article 
2.1c that, that, that the financial flows that should really be aligned towards addressing the the global temperature targets of uh, 1.5 degrees and it also launched a work program on just transition um this is absolutely important not just for transitioning of of workers uh, from the fossil fuel sector to the green job sector but also transitioning of local communities from current practices to sustainable ones so this it's a, it was also one of the important components that emerged from the uh, from the cover decision of the COP. Uh, there were also negotiations around the gender. A lot of stakeholders wanted stronger language uh, that really highlights the importance of centering gender components at the heart of climate action. A lot of work needs to be done on this. Uh, my sense is that a lot of stakeholders left with it not being impressed with the, with the negotiations around gender and climate. And, and uh, a lot of work needs to be done for, for the next round of negotiations to really strengthen this, especially the human rights uh, component. So I probably will stop here and, and uh, yeah, if you have uh, questions then. Mm. So, uh, even before the COP27 itself started, uh, the main event started, um, some countries had already started making announcements, you know, we started hearing monies. So, with what you have just said, considering the fact that, you know, the fund has been announced and it has been established, but we're not really sure exactly who would be getting it, what would be triggering such fund, who would be contributing to such fund. Uh, should we be excited, you know, that at least the fund has been announced and it's been approved and it's been established or will it still take a long time for it to be operationalized i would say cautious excitement cautious excitement first because this conversation has been on for 30 years it has never been on the cop agenda every time it is it's remained a taboo topic uh for this space i remember once discussing with some high level official um within the intergovernmental space and i was uh, I, the conversation was there and this this official was was telling me that we should change the coin of loss and damage instead of using words like loss and damage we should use words like uh i think it was risk and opportunities or something like this and i remember saying that the, that the problem was not in the nomenclature of this of this negotiation item that's that has been proposed it's about the commitment of parties to deliver on them so what has what has changed the game i suppose is the impact of climate change that is expanding not just in the most vulnerable countries but also in europe and in america for example the last year floods in in parts of europe in germany in switzerland and all the places really devastated communities that those countries had to pay these communities loss and damage fund so after paying this loss and damage fund, it is probably my suspicion that then it was easier to listen to this conversation because the impact were right there with their communities. They could see it and then they could believe it. We also must not underestimate the, the, the important role that countries like Pakistan played in really driving this agenda forward. Having experienced intense floods this year, it was, it, it was very, very impressive to see the leadership of Pakistan, of the G77 and China negotiating group within the space. They really worked so hard with other blocs like the AOCs, the Alliance of Small Island States, to push as hard as possible to deliver on, on this uh, loss and damage fund. Yes, we only have the fund there. We don't have the details. We don't know where the money is coming from. There are already, other, there are already commitments to this fund you know, from countries who donated willingly. But it's, it's, it's of course, not enough. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, you know, a good indication that countries are looking to commit. But what is required is going to be enormous. 
it may take time before we really have this fund operationalized. First of all, it's going to have a secretariat. Who is going to host the secretariat? We don't know. We will know about who is who, which country is hosting the secretariat in the coming weeks. After the secretariat is established, we have to have conversations with the UNFCCC secretariat on, on how to really operationalize. There will be an advisory group that advises on how this should be set up, what are the components, who can access, how can this fund be rapidly disposed, because we are talking about addressing impact, post-climate disaster impact. Mitigation takes care of causes, adaptation takes care of just before the impact and during the impact. But then uh, loss and damage is about what happens after the impact. So this fund needs to be disbursed immediately and also in anticipation. It, 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 need, it needs to have a special mechanism that makes it flexible to really address the challenges of people as quickly as possible. So it's going to take some time. I, I don't want to put a time frame uh, on it, but uh, I will not be expecting that it, it will happen today or tomorrow. It could take a few years to really set up this fund determine the whole modus operandi of how it runs and then begin disbursement and of course there will be things about accreditation who is eligible to eligible to access what manner of metrics do you use to gauge which countries are eligible and which countries are not and which countries are going to contribute to this pot right a lot of fingers are pointed at china that they must contribute why china is officially a developing country within the framework uh, some countries feel that their circumstances have changed strongly and they should no longer be classified as a developing country. So these dynamics will also develop in terms of who should be contributing uh, to this fund. But at least we have it established. We can have these conversations then in the, in the next cycles of negotiations, both in the one in June and in the one that will happen next year in, in, uh, in UAE uh, in November, December. Uh, not to put you on the spot, but if you would, you know, determine if it's, you know, for you to determine who should contribute and who should be eligible and um, to benefit from the funds, how would you classify the countries that should contribute and the countries that should be eligible for the loss and damage funds? Well, cur- currently, what we have from the from from the negotiations is that it's it's looking for countries that would benefit from this fund to be countries that are most vulnerable to climate impact. So it's it's it, it's tried to shrink the the, the the number of eligible countries that can access this fund. While there was a lot of appetite to push for the access to be open for a wide range of countries, largely developing countries, to be able to access. But then the, the, the fear from the funders is that that will open a large chunk of, of, of access issues for a lot of countries to then be eligible to access this fund, which means that the contributions they may be able to get will not be enough to go around. So it's, it's looking to be narrowed to most vulnerable, particularly vulnerable actually, particularly vulnerable uh, uh, countries to be able to access this fund. Uh, I think in my, in my own understanding or opinion, I would say that countries, of the, the countries, especially countries of the global south, who obviously face this challenge should be eligible to to, uh, to access this funding. Um, it, it, there could be determinations around what qualifies to, you know, the, the, the details of what who qualifies to access. Uh, but at least if it's open to everybody to access, we can then get into the details of what kind of situation qualifies as loss and damage situation, what kind of situation does not qualify so that you make sure that countries are not abusing um, that process to then have everything uh, funded through the loss and damage fund. Mm, and who should contribute? Uh, well, obviously, I think that uh, developed countries have the responsibility to contribute to this as it's in the process of the UN, of the UN climate change. 
uh, they traditionally have been the ones with the responsibility to contribute as much owing to the enormous emissions that they've contributed as well, which are part of the causes of this impact. So if the emissions were not there at the beginning, um, we may not have a situation of loss and damage. So the, the biggest emitters have a responsibility to contribute regardless, I think, of their of their status within the UN frameworks, whether they are Annex 1 or Annex 2 countries. Okay, now the UN Secretary General, um, Antonio Guterres, unveiled a $3.1 billion plan to ensure everyone on the planet is protected by early warning systems in the next five years. And according to the UN still, only 40% of African population have access to early warning systems against extreme weather and climate change impacts. It seems like we are turning to technology um, for mitigation. What are your thoughts about this as it concerns African countries and how we're looking to technology? And then for those countries who do not exactly have these technologies, how long do you think it will take to set up this fund um, and to get the access to these monies? Um, And... I just hope that these persons do not, um, you know, I, I don't want to use the word like die, but I just hope that they're not really affected before um, the next five years when the early warning systems, you know, actually goes global, like everyone can actually be covered by it. So, so what are your thoughts about this? Well, thank you for action. I think uh, this one, uh, the early warning system is absolutely vital, not just for Africa, but for every country, right? It's an important solution to, to, to climate impact. For example, in Nigeria this year, we've had over 600 uh, uh, people die from flooding. This death could be prevented with precise, more targeted early warning systems. I know there were warnings, also there were a bit of exchanges between the federal and state government on who acted and who did not. But early warning systems are absolutely vital in the, in the most vulnerable places to be able to inform the local communities, the government, that this is going to happen at this time. As part of your adaptation strategy, this is what you're expected to do, and this is how we can assist you. It helps you to plan. It helps you to have data on where will be the most impact, what will be the scale of impact, what are the response measures needed, what are the anticipatory actions needed. It enhances early planning. It reduces risk. It reduces vulnerability of the most affected people and areas. Uh, so it, it helps you at least to move a population away from a, an area of danger into a higher place where they can stay in the immediate. It helps you to then plan how will people that will be impacted in this area access education, access um, sexual reproductive health and rights services, access, you know, more multiple vital daily needs within this period until they're able to be resettled. It helps you ensure that girls' education is not scuttled. So it's an absolutely important strategy, not for mitigation, it is, it's actually more for adaptation and resilience building. The early warning systems are more for adaptation, resilience building, and even being able to channel loss and damage finance if, if, if there is one. So it's absolutely important. This is already ongoing. Obviously, there is a shortfall in this. We need to do this in more and more countries that also incorporates vulnerability assessment to have data that are disaggregated by gender, by age, in multiple forms, really, really heavily disaggregated data that you can know who is impacted where what 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 is their sex how are you going to have a targeted response for each demographic it's absolutely an important that i'm I'm really glad and thank the secretary general for being able to 
to to highlight this and be very vocal in 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 driving this conversation around climate change secretary general has also been immensely vocal in in driving the conversation around loss and damage and i think all stakeholders especially those from the most vulnerable places find uh, in in him and an an important and incredible ally that really amplifies their voices uh, across this issue so i think it's an absolutely welcome development it will take time to come in many countries but we need to go as fast as we can to deliver it in the most affected places so we can at least stop the loss of lives for me climate action must first of all stop people from dying then you can talk about every other thing but people must stop dying and then we can take care of the rest if if we keep losing people then we're not we're not achieving anything hmm. very very important if we keep losing people we are not achieving it because like what exactly is the aim of it if not you know to save life and ensure that you know life is better for um, um the human beings here on earth now as Many countries either go to the pole um, in the on the continent, or just witnessed, you know, you know, a new government or election. It doesn't exactly look like climate change issues are, you know, the front burner, like the major issues being discussed. You know, Kenya, for example, just had their election, and we know Kenya has suffered from, you know, one of the most intense. You know, droughts and climate um, um, change um, extremities. Nigeria will be going to polls in 2023, um, early 2023, and it doesn't still look like climate change is one of the major issues that are being discussed every day when um, uh, matters of national development and politics are being talked about. What can we do to put climate change issues and matters at the center of national politics and discourse? I think in in uh, in developing countries such as the ones you've listed, uh, it's it's a big challenge because in these places there's multiple issues. There are issues about out of school children. There's issues about water and sanitation access. There's issue of economic inflation, unemployment, uh, insecurity, kidnapping. You know, uh, criminal activities here and there. There's incredible poverty. You know, there's a lot of issues that are, that require our attention as well there's health issues you don't have primary health care systems you know so there's many issues and also there is the lack of literacy around climate change and climate discussions that that really prevent it from being put on and on the front burner of the agenda as it should by the people when you go to local communities where climate change impacts are most intense and most visible how many of them have the education to even understand that this is climate change how many of them make the linkage of their realities their daily realities to climate impacts even how does the government policies connect to this in most of these countries what i see i see clear climate impacts linkage to insecurity gender inequality child marriage gender based violence and all of these issues climate is exacerbating them but then how is it captured in the policy it's often not a connection to the policy response and then you find that even how the media picks it up it's significantly different right for example in nigeria as of 20, 2018 i was already writing uh, articles in the national newspaper about the impact of climate change on our national security especially within the northern part of the country this impact has continued to grow but how is the government articulating the response in its climate plan but also in its security plan right so that articulation needs to happen then it's it is transferred to the people's awareness the media picks it up and then it can become a core agenda for election for example in europe there's no problem about putting climate on the agenda it is on the ballot 
if, if you're not going to address it in many countries, you're losing election. It's on the ballot. It should be even more on the ballot in developing countries because the impacts are enormous. But there's less literacy in trying to make the connection. And that is where I find the challenge that we must address. Any ideas on how we can go about, you know, addressing it? I think obviously there's a, a lot of climate education that needs to happen. There's a lot of capacity building that needs to happen also for people that work in public institutions, government institutions, other public institutions. At the, at the, at the primary, secondary, tertiary education level, climate education needs to be enhanced. The people should be aware of what impact they are facing. The farmer that is complaining of reduced yield needs to know why the crops are not doing well, why there's disruption in wind patterns, why he needs to use enhanced crop to, to adapt to different situations. If they, are, if they are planting in a drought area or drought prone area, they can use drought resistance seedlings. You know, this kind of education needs to happen for people to be able to understand. So education is absolutely important. Capacity building of people who serve the public needs to happen so they can be able to then in planning, in making national policies, in making national plans be able to articulate this very organically without any any hesitations. Mm. Now, it seems that young people were in the spotlight in this COP in Egypt. I, I heard that a pavilion was devoted to children and youth, and it was for the first time. Uh, we know that the younger generations will suffer the most from the climate crisis we currently feel. What's your take on how important it is for developing countries in Africa to ensure that the younger generation are not just educated, um, have the education, understand what it is, but also are given the tools and prepared to deal with the crisis that is ahead. I think young people in Africa and all over the world have shown incredible leadership. I think they've, they've shown what they can do. They've shown beyond their voices, their competence. And I think for for so many years, we fought for more youth spaces within this process. We fought for these spaces from, for young people from the global south. We've seen that space expand and increase. And I look back uh, from years past, for example, when we were at COP22 in Marrakesh in 2016. You know, it, it was a very lean space. There were limited global south engagement. But now we have a lot of young people from the global south who are able to access these spaces, who are part of their negotiating team, who are making incredible changes. It's still not enough. We need more young people on the negotiating table to influence directly the outcomes of the negotiations. We need young more people, uh, more, more young people in decision-making spaces to be ministers in their countries, to be MPs, to be able to facilitate organically important decisions that, that are climate-friendly in their countries. We need to trust young people because they've shown the competence and they've shown the capacity to deliver. In fact, of course, I've, I've worked. In, I've, I've also been a, a leader of the youth constituency within, within this space, and I know how incredibly competent some of, or many of my colleagues are, and, and how they can really deliver for their country if truly given that responsibility. So I think the young people have demonstrated enormous will, enormous commitment, enormous knowledge and competence to deliver, and their countries should, especially those in in Africa, should trust them to deliver on this agenda item and to, to, to advance it. Their generation or this generation of young people are the ones that will face the most impact, but also they will be in between success of this agenda or failure. And they must be involved in the implementation of these decisions. We have the Youth Pavilion 
which was great. Uh, it was an, an incredible space for young people to, to gather. But uh, there was already a youth process within the climate negotiations. There's a youth constituency that has been there for, for over a decade and has been facilitating meaningful youth engagement within the, 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 the space and uh, getting into negotiations also through multiple means. But this must be enhanced and countries must enhance the number of young people that are negotiating in, in very critical items for them. Uh, climate finance, adaptation, loss and damage, and also not just be, not just that, but also in the implementation. They must be part of the implementation of this agenda item. So I think um, we will benefit a lot if, if young people are more mainstreamed across the implementation side. Mm. And now what is next for Africa after COP27? Next steps, next things to do? Well, we don't have the financing to do what we want to do. Adaptation finance is five to ten 10 times lower than what is required for this continent. And it's, it's, it's important that it delivers for the people and for the planet. So we need to keep pushing for doubling and actual doubling of adaptation finance, right? To have it delivered on the table beyond pledges to have the finance in the bank. This is important. It's also important that African countries are able to develop national adaptation plans that really showcase their long-term plan on how they want to adapt to the impact of climate change and what sectors they are focusing on and how these sectors, these multiple sectors are coming together to address uh, this multiple impact. This is absolutely important uh, for for the African continent. And again, of course, uh, we need to keep pushing in the international scene. The loss and damage fund is established, but we need to discuss the details. We need to keep pushing as hard as we can to really implement this commitment. We need to push developed countries to implement their own commitment because if they implement their own commitments, their NDC commitments, their net zero commitments, we will actually have a reduced emissions target. You know, emission reduction will, will then begin to happen and then we can begin to feel the less impact in, a, in maybe three decades time. So we need to hold ourselves accountable but also hold others accountable to be able to, uh, to hear this eye of relief. Okay, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, any final thoughts um, as to what transpired at COP27 and what should we should be expecting as we look forward to the next COP um, and then the technical negotiations that, happen, that would happen in June uh, 2023? Well, I think uh, we, we, it's, it's great to have uh, the COP27. Congratulations to Egypt for hosting. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, positive sides. There were also some some other sides that could be improved. Um, uh, for COP28, everybody's looking forward to that, knowing the UAE, they are really ambitious and, and likes to, to deliver really outstanding things. So let's see how that goes. There's a lot of optimism around that. There's uh, some conversations that maybe it will be technology heavy, but we will see how this goes. And we have to be optimistic that UAE will really deliver in terms of implementation, but also in raising ambition. And then that we can have uh, technical negotiations in between that will bring us to a very good place ahead of the COP28. So I call, I call on everybody, my fellow stakeholders, government countries, everybody in every space, to work hands in gloves uh, uh, together, stronger, united in one vision, ambition, ambition and ambition and delivery of our commitments is absolutely important. We need to hold our governments accountable in all spheres so that we don't come every year to make pledges, but actually make pledges that we will implement. This is absolutely important. Implementation is the key. And where does the implementation happen? At the national level. And this is important for everybody to keep an eye on. 
Thank you very much. While the Glasgow Climate Pact is the first ever climate deal to explicitly plan to reduce coal, you know, phase down, COP27 brought about the establishment of a loss and damage fund. So yes, we have a loss and damage fund, just like Chagosi, who I'm speaking to now, you know, hammered on this um, this time last year, immediately after COP26. And yes, he says, um, cautious excitement. But the decision on loss and damage the fund won't fix our climate change issues and it won't fix it immediately because the fund comes with many unknowns you know like what the criteria will be to trigger a payout where the money will come from who will benefit from the from the fund um if will the funds even be enough to address all the issues as we plan towards cop 28 we all need to know that efforts are still not anywhere strong enough and we must all up our game to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Thank you, Chagosi, for speaking to us today. Thank you for sharing your thoughts too with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. And enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah, but before I let you go, before I let you go, Chagosi, um, who do you tip to win the World Cup in Qatar? Oh, probably not a good day to ask this question after what Saudi did yesterday. But uh, <laughs> I still... I, I still remain uh, confident. You sound like a Messi fan. I am a, well, I am an absolute Messi fan, so okay. <laughs> I can't that. Yeah, so I, I hope that Argentina comes back to uh, to win it. But I'll be cheering for Switzerland until they get knocked out. Okay, you sound very sure that they'll get knocked out. <laughs> well, we'll see. I, I have that expectation of where they can get to, but uh, we will see. Never know. Okay, and um, towards the elections in Nigeria in 2023, I'm not asking you who you think would win, but um, uh, if you have three issues you think should be at the front, like the major issues every contender should have a plan towards solving, what three issues um, would you propose? I know we have uh, at least 133 million people in multi-dimensional poverty that is a clear priority for anyone that wants to run the government of the country when you have more than half of your population in multi-dimensional poverty it is not something to smile about it is a total crisis and must be addressed so that's an immediate priority obviously electricity is an issue for the country it's been an issue for many years uh, that should be addressed it should be an obvious priority for the country to address this energy crisis and of course insecurity it's is 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 been uh, a major issue in the last decade for this country it's even increasing multiple faults spread across the country in many ways this is an important area to tackle as well um i think a safe country would do a lot of good to all the other sectors of development that needs to be addressed i think a lot of things need work uh, you cannot really choose but it's important to highlight these areas Thank you very much for your thoughts. And would you be vo- would you be back in uh, Nigeria for the elections? Would you be would you be voting? Uh, I, I'm not very sure about that, but uh, we will see. Okay, but you'll be encouraging people who are in Nigeria to do so. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, everyone should be able to exercise their franchise. Uh, that should be important. Uh, and this brings up the issue of you know like voting from diaspora voting. You know that uh, this has been an issue in Nigeria for for a lot of years. But would you be glad if you know excited if you know um, diaspora voting started? In, you know, 
in Nigerian elections. Of course, that that everybody. I mean, everybody looks forward to that, and and uh, it's 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 not helpful to exclude a large chunk of the population who are living abroad from contributing to that process, uh, which is also part of their rights. So hopefully, this will be addressed going forward. Thank you very much. I won't want to hold you any much longer. Thank you very much. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to catch up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com.